0: Loving God, open our hearts and help us believe, amen. The Episcopal Church used to have an ad campaign with a picture of Jesus and a line of copy, which read, he died to take away your sins, not your mind. When I first came to the church during my college years, seeking a refuge from the anti-intellectual fundamentalism of my upbringing, seeing this ad on posters and bookmarks around the campus ministry office brought me great comfort. It meant that I had made the right choice, that this was a thinking church, an intellectual church. Episcopalians didn't get carried away with emotion like the church that I grew up in we Episcopalians have a reasonable, considered faith. If the church that I grew up in was the National Enquirer, the Episcopal Church was the New York Times. The longer I've been Episcopalian, though, the more I think that that ad campaign misses the mark. Don't get me wrong, I still believe that science and faith can and should coexist in the modern world, I haven't suddenly become a creationist. On the other, on the contrary, I believe that God wants us to use our brains and enjoy the benefits that the post-Enlightenment scientific revolution has made possible. Science is great on how the world works, but science doesn't have a lot to say about why, about meaning, and clinging to intellect in my experience anyway, doesn't get you any closer to the meaning. It doesn't get you any closer to God. Pointing out that Jesus died to take away my sins, not my mind, is a non sequitur. One point doesn't follow from the other. It's like pointing out that Jesus died to take away my sins, not my laptop. I mean, who cares? So what? It isn't possible to think your way to God. Logical proofs for God's existence have been attempted since before the birth of Christianity, but none of them hold water. They may be helpful to those who already believe, but they will never convince those whose own experience tells them nothing of God. Now, having said all of that, I would also like to say that I really do sympathize with our brother, Thomas, the Doubter. In the gospel passage today, Thomas tells us, I will not believe until I put my finger in the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side. And really, who could blame him? Even 2,000 years ago, in a pre-scientific age, some people weren't so stupid as to think that the dead could rise again. Thomas is a realist, and he's going to need proof Here, I think, is where Thomas begins to run into trouble. The problem isn't that he's a doubter, but rather it's the kind of knowledge that Thomas is seeking. I will believe, he says, when I have objective proof. I must see this with my own eyes and feel it with my hands. Then I will believe. Then I will know. If this is the kind of proof that we require of God, I'm afraid that we're out of luck. This isn't the kind of proof that God offers us. This isn't the way that God is known. God's truth is not for the mind, but rather it is for the heart. In my experience, we must either come to know God with our hearts, that is through our feelings and emotions and experiences, or not at all. Trying to get to know God with your head alone is a dead-end treat. At least it was for me. Our hearts, though, may be more or less malleable, more or less open. In fact, hardening our hearts is sometimes a defense mechanism that we use to get through another day in a world that can seem cold and indifferent to our suffering and to the suffering of others. After college, I spent a year working with the Episcopal Service Corps. I was a case manager in a homeless shelter on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And during that year, I had to harden my heart a bit in order to just keep getting up every morning and going back into that challenging environment every day. But friends, God is not content to leave us with hard and resistant hearts. Whenever our hearts have grown cold, it is God's intention to then give us a new heart. This is how the prophet Ezekiel puts it in the Hebrew scriptures. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We've just completed another Holy Week, A week in which, year after year, we recount the story of Christ's passion. And one of the reasons Christian tradition has focused so much on this particular story, the reason that we revere the cross and remember Jesus' suffering, is just this, that this is a story intended to break your heart of stone. Now, this works better for some people than for others. Some of us can accept the story of Christ's passion and be moved by it. Others resist it, doubting that a good and gracious God would allow such a terrible thing to happen. And I think this doubt is healthy. After all, focusing on Good Friday in isolation means forgetting both what came before and what came after. The teaching and the actions that that got Jesus in trouble with Rome in the first place, and the resurrection life that came after. The cross is not an end in itself, as Christians were called to follow Jesus in the teachings that led him to the cross, and also to share with him in the new life that began with the resurrection after the cross. Luckily, God has other ways to try and break open our hearts. God has written other stories into creation that are meant to open us up and to move us closer to God's presence. The beauty of waves crashing into the shore, or the cry of the gulls, or the smell of flowers in spring, or the beauty that we see in the faces of others, the strength and the power in the faces of those who have lived long and suffered much, but who still managed to act with kindness to strangers. Some people just seem to have an innate gift for going through the world, always able to see God's presence. Like Thomas, I often have my doubts, but I also have a feeling that God is behind all of the beauty that I see in the world around me, and in every good gift that I have to be thankful for. Now to the unbeliever, something like a feeling might not seem like much to build a life of faith on, but I'm surprised every day how much this little subjective feeling can change my perspective it asks me to look at rain and see flowers, to look at setbacks and see opportunities, to look at moments of pain and see a time and a chance for grace. In other words, this, this feeling asks me to put away my doubt and to believe. Now, of course, feelings are ephemeral. They change We cannot always be happy, and we will not always feel God's presence. Faith, like good manners, is also a matter of practice. Even on the most ordinary day, there's usually a reason to say thank you, whether or not you feel like it. When we are faced with seemingly insurmountable difficulties, war and famine, suffering and loss, it is the practice of our faith that matters, not the way we feel about it. We may feel little and helpless and inconsequential, but it's what we do, it's the actions we take that changes the way things are. We choose to feed one hungry person. We pray for peace. We hold someone's hand in the hospital. And in doing these little things, we participate with God in the transformation of the world. Most of us are not privileged, as Thomas was, to place our hands literally on Jesus's wounds and so be convinced of God's love for us. But I bet that all of us, one time or another, when we were listening with all of our heart, have heard Jesus whisper in our ear, do not doubt, but believe. Now, sometimes I hear this and I resist, but every time I put my faith into practice, by sharing the love that God has given me with others, I find that my heart grows more open and that because of that, believing becomes easier step by step and day by day. Amen.